radio gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Good evening and welcome to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the American gun violence epidemic. Hear us every Tuesday at 6.30 on WBAI.org. Later in the show, we'll tell you how you can support this great radio station by becoming a BAI buddy. I'm Loretta Chan. And I'm Virginia Vitzdoom. For this show, we talked to two survivors of gun violence, Matt Gross and Kim Russell. Both had a friend die the day they were shot in 1997 and 1999, respectively. Both turned 50 this year. They talk about life before and after, about PTSD, about survivor's guilt, and about making meaning out of tragedy. They also describe the experience of being shot, which is upsetting, so this show may not be for children. But first, an in memoriam to remind us of why we do this work. Sydney Ilo, 19, shot herself to death on March 17th. Sydney graduated from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High last June and was at school when 14 of her classmates and three school staff were gunned down. Meadow Pollock was Sydney's best friend, and Sydney was also very close with Joaquin Oliver. Both died that day. Sydney joined her fellow Stoneman Douglas survivors in Washington, D.C. for the March for Our Lives, seizing the unwanted spotlight to galvanize the gun violence prevention movement. March for Our Lives is responsible for gun control being part of November's blue wave. Sydney also made meaning from her tragedy by advocating for suicide prevention. A week after she graduated from high school last June, she shared a post on social media encouraging others to check on those friends who seem the strongest. Asking for help is not a weakness, the message said. Sydney took yoga in high school before the shooting and dived in deeper afterwards. She had trained to be a yoga instructor in Costa Rica this past summer. Sydney, in short, did everything right. She used the tragedy to advocate for change. She asked for help. She took care of herself. But she still suffered survivor's guilt and had recently received a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, according to her mother. She enrolled in college, but was often too afraid to be in a classroom. Jody Weiner is a yoga instructor who offered free classes to teens with trauma, including Sydney. Weiner said, When she came in, I could see PTSD from hello. I didn't get to spend enough time with her. If you are in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255, or contact the crisis text line by texting TALK to 741-741. Sydney was the first of three suicides by gun violence survivors that we heard about in one week. It was the first time I had thought deeply about the thousands of gun violence survivors who are coping with PTSD every day. Most of them don't make the news. Our first guest, however, did make the news as he happened to be shot on top of the Empire State Building. Virginia and I went out to meet Matt Gross in his home in Hawthorne, New Jersey, where he lives alone after several years in supervised housing for people with brain injuries. 
In February 1997, Matt Gross went to the top of the Empire State Building with his friend and bandmate, Christopher Burmeister. Matt and Chris both played guitar and wrote songs for the Bush Pilots, who had just released their second CD and had a growing fan base. Five other friends were with them, including some girls who were fans of the Bush Pilots. It was February 23rd, and it was a warm day for that time of year, and it was very beautiful. I said to the girls, I said, do you know anything about New York? They said, no. I said, why don't we go to the Empire State Building? Chris said, I don't want to go. I said, Chris, there's six of us that want to go. Well, he came, and uh, this guy came over, 69 years old, and he said, hi, are you Italian or American? I thought that was bizarre. I said, I'm American. So we talked for five minutes, um, in my normal kind of way, having fun with strangers. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to go. And I said, Chris, we have to go. And he said, okay, let's go. And the guy had the gun in the back of his belt, and he started shooting. And he shot Chris in the back of his head, and I went after him, and he shot me through my brain, basically. went in, uh, in front of my right temple, through my head, and came out the other temple. And uh, they did an eight-hour operation on me that day. The doctors performed the surgery while Matt was in a coma, which he came out of after five days. He stayed in Bellevue Hospital for two months, then at a rehab facility in New Jersey for another three months. Christopher died instantly. Nobody told me that he died. And I got to tell you, I, they might have been trying to protect me. Um, I had no TV in my room. I didn't have any newspapers in my room. And then eventually I found out about it uh, three weeks after I was shot. And it really upset me they didn't tell me about it. But one sad thing about Chris was we played three shows the week before, and we played one show in Ithaca, and he said, there are two things I never want to do in New York City. And we said, what are they? And he said, I don't... <laughs> I don't want to go top the Empire State Building of the World Trade Center, he said the week before. Before Matt found out about Chris, right after he emerged from the coma, he had vivid hallucinations and confusions. I thought I was in high school, running for president of a high school. Uh, then I thought one of my doctors was my music teacher from college. I was wrong about all of these things. Matt's brain injury merged with survivor's guilt into strange symptoms, and as time went by, he discovered what he'd retained and what he'd lost. I also had the worst OCDs in the world when I found out what happened to Chris, because I felt I convinced him to go up there that day. And I was like, wouldn't step on the cracks. I would always be three cracks away from the sidewalk. I would never breathe in the car unless there was nothing to my right. Be... <gasps> uh, I was in the hospital for five months. They had a keyboard, and I could play keyboard a little bit. And, and I'm playing the song Faithfully by uh, Journey. Dun, 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 dun. And my father couldn't believe it. He was amazed by it. Uh, you know, there there are a couple things that affect me a lot. I, I can't smell since the shooting. Um, I get tired very easily. 
I don't have the same managerial skills. Like I used to run a band and they say, this is what you do. This is what you do. I would book the shows. I would write the songs. I would, you know, make the set list, get the fan group together, the, the people on our mailing list together. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I mean, you don't know me the way that I was, but I was always cynical, always laughing, always smart, knowing things all the time. And one of the worst things is I've written over 500 songs and I cannot remember the words to more than three of them. I can't do it. I also had no tactfulness at all, like at all. I was speaking with old ladies about women in my life on the street. I was just bizarre. Like I was just crazy like that. Um, I also saw things in black and white all the time. I either loved somebody or hated somebody. I'm getting a lot better with that now. Um... But it took, uh, I think, five years for me to realize that it's just not the same. Like, I lived in a house with 24-7 supervision. It took me a year to move out of there. So now, on my own. Um, But, like, I couldn't get permission to go out, to go to concerts, to go see my friends. Matt now works a few days a week at a community food bank in Hillside, New Jersey. I deliver the mail, which is a job I made up for myself, which I got to tell you that is just so much fun. I have a mail cart. I go to every office in the whole food bank. Um, so I, I see everybody every day. Uh, then I work in agency relations where I have to mop the floor, sweep the floor, clean the tables load the water in the cooler. Matt was 27 when he was shot. He turns 50 this month. Once your brain's injured, you never get back to the way that you were before. You have to find a new normal, a new way of being. I know that I'm not going to have a pen to get a recording contract and do the things I used to do. So right now I want to continue to work at the food bank, getting on with my life, doing the best that I can do. We noticed the guitar sitting in Matt's living room. We asked him to play. First, Matt reflected on the changes between him now and him before the shooting. Yeah, I used to be with women all the time. That's not going on in my life anymore at all. Um, I used to just be free, go around, do what I want, have fun. I, I don't do that anymore. I, I used to, my, my job was playing music. That was my job. Do you want to play a song that, um, from your band? Or do you want to play Knocking on Heaven's Door? I'll or? play Knocking on Heaven's Door. I can do that. Though Matt insists he's not the same after his brain injury, we could see the warm and charming musician he was and still is. Yeah, and what a treat to hear him play the Dylan song. For our second segment, GAG co-founder Kevin Herzog visited Kim Russell. Kim helped found Moms Demand Action and is now executive advisor of the Women's March. She describes the evening she and her friend Philip were headed out for a night on the town. 
Can you just talk a little bit about that night? Is that okay? Well, it was almost 20 years ago, which I can't believe. It was April 24th. It was a Saturday in Atlanta, and it was, you know, a beautiful spring day. And Philip called me out of the blue and wanted to know what I was doing. We ended up going to dinner, and then after that we were going to go to an art party, which was in a warehouse. And it was on our way to the warehouse when we were robbed at gunpoint. I heard a really loud noise, and I thought it was fireworks. Then I heard Philip yell something, but it took me a second because I had had a couple of glasses of wine at dinner, mm. but it registered with me that that was a warning yell. Mm. And then I thought, oh, that's actually gunfire. So then I started running around a truck to try to get cover, and the whole time I was running, I was being shot at. And I remember thinking to myself that if the shooter saw me see him, then he would kill me. Mm. So I kept saying, you know, I don't see you. I don't see you. Please don't shoot me. And I had my hands covering my eyes as I was running and ducking. And then I dove under a truck. And then I heard some footsteps coming. And I thought, oh, God. You know, I thought, well, I'm going to play dead now because he's been shooting at me. I could be dead. So I was trying to play dead, and I felt the gun on my head. At, at this point, I still had my eyes closed. And he said something about my purse, and so I finally opened my eyes, and I handed him my purse, and he removed the gun, and he took my purse, and then he put the gun back on my head, and then... I remember clenching my fist and just pleading for him to not do this. And, um, and he didn't. He moved the gun and he pointed it in the air and he shot into the air and then he ran. I was so scared. Mm -hmm. And then I heard more footsteps and it took me a minute to realize that they were friendly voices. And so I came out and I said, you know, please, my friend, my friend. And we found Philip and he had been shot in the back. Technically, he was still alive at that point, but I knew he was gone. I mean, his eyes were open, but he was just not connecting, and, and I knew. And it was then that I realized that my back was burning. So they lifted up my shirt and discovered that I had been grazed, I guess, while I was running. Wow. Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your life was like before you got shot and then how your life was altered by that incident? Before I was shot, um, I was pretty carefree. A young woman, I was single. I had an interesting job. I was just excited. I had a dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, things were, were pretty good. I was in a good place. After I was shot, it it just rocked my world. Mm -hmm. It um, really impacted my sense of safety and my sense of personal agency. Mm -hmm. I just I felt so violated and and I felt really insecure uh, about being able to take care of myself. I mean, when you're when it's you and a gun, <laughs> there's really not a lot you can do then the next sort of triggering moment in your life was Sandy Hook. Is that true? Yeah, so I 
got on with my life. I moved to New York. I got married. I had children. I just sort of wanted to leave it all behind me. Nobody in New York knew what had happened to me. I changed my last name when I got married. I didn't alert the prison that I had moved or anything. I was uh, working as a graphic designer and took some time off to have kids and was a stay-at-home mom. And then Sandy Hook happened, and I remember where I was, what exactly what I was doing. And my daughter was sitting in a first-grade classroom, and I was with my four-year-old son, and my father texted me to ask if I was okay. I was like, yeah, we're fine. And then I saw the news, and I thought, first graders? First graders shot in their classroom? My daughter's in first grade? Mm -hmm. And it just, it was weird. I had a, I call them episodes. They're just these flashes of PTSD. And, and my body sort of takes on, I guess, the moment that, that it happened to me. And, and I want to run, but I can't move. My heart starts racing. Uh, my mouth gets really dry. My hands get, get sweaty. Yeah. At that point, you know, I was 13 years away from my tragedy, so I had had them. They'd stopped happening so much, and I probably only had a few a year, but that one was strong. Mm. And it was different because now it wasn't me, it was my kids. And being a parent and thinking what happened to me could happen to them just turned my world upside down. Mm. And then I got online and, and accidentally helped start Moms Demand Action. <laughs> just as you do. <laughs> as you do. Yeah, and it, and it changed my life. Yeah. It, and and I'm, I'm still at it. I, I'm no longer a single issue, but, you know, I'm sort of the, the gun expert here in, in the multi-issue platform I work on now. I wonder if you could share what the methodology is that you use that you found effective to, to combat your PTSD I think I just try to breathe through it, mm. you know, and I just tell myself that was just a loud sound. You're okay. You don't need to run. I think it comes back at unexpected times, and yeah. that's the part. And I think it's just our body has a memory. Our muscles have this memory. Yeah. The smell of spring can also uh, upset my, my system because mm. the, it happened in spring, loud sounds. I know some of the most incredible people on the planet, and I know them through gun violence. But these survivors, one thing we always say is that you never really get over it. You just learn to live with it. You never judge anybody's grief, mm -hmm. and you never judge how they're working through something. Mm -hmm. Some people might you know, immediately go and give speeches to Congress. Some people may want to keep a gun. Uh, that's... It's such a personal thing, and there's no manual to this. Yeah. You just have to muddle through it. Yeah. You know, my father was, was the one who got the call at 1 o'clock in the morning saying, your daughter's been shot. She's at the hospital. Um, you know, and he went through this whole process with me. Mm. He still owns a gun. He still goes and shoots it at a range. He knows the work that I do, and he agrees with expanding background checks. He thinks that's perfectly reasonable. But he's not going to give up his gun. Mm. And we actually had a big disagreement at one time because I was visiting him. My son was four years old, and I had asked him to make sure that his guns were, were locked up and, and unloaded, and, and I thought he had done that, and, and I found one. And it looked like a toy. My son would have found it and played with it. It looked like a toy even to me. Mm. Eventually, he came around, but it was just, it was really hard because it's so ingrained in him as a father 
to protect his loved ones. And for him, protecting us means being armed. And for me, protecting us means being not armed. And we both love each other. We both want to protect our loved ones, but we just come at it from completely different viewpoints. And there's no amount of statistics that I can tell him where he comes to grips with that. And so this is the 20th anniversary of that day. Yeah, it's coming up. You're going through the mental process of figuring out how you're going to handle the fact that your shooter is up for parole. Philip's mom reached out to me a few weeks ago to let me know that um, our shooter would be likely up for parole soon and that I could send in an opposition statement to the parole board. And it just weighed so heavily on me. And, and I knew it was coming. I've known for years that this day was coming. But I've learned so much, um, you know, now that I work in the movement preventing gun violence. I think if I had been asked to write this letter of opposition seven years ago, I probably would have written it without much thought. A life for a life. You know, don't let him out. He mm -hmm. killed my friend. He mm -hmm. tried to kill me. But now it's not that simple. Since I've been working as an activist, I've been to some places that, you know, were unexpected. And um, I was giving a, a talk at a conference once, and the guy before me had shot and killed someone when he was 19 years old. And now he is working in these really tough communities, and he is working on dealing with the trauma that an entire community experiences. So I've been doing some research, and it turns out that the Georgia uh, Correctional Facility offers a program called Victims Offender Dialogue. Mm. And if it's initiated by the victim and then the perpetrator approves, then through a facilitated meeting, I can go and talk to him. The idea is that this restorative justice process is supposed to really help everyone involved. So it made me rethink about my shooter. My shooter was 17 when he committed this crime, and he uh, did not have a, a father in his life. His mother was in and out of prison. He sometimes lived with his grandmother. He didn't have a lot of role models. Mm. You know, it's just hard to condemn someone to a life in prison for a mistake they made when they were 17. I remember when Sandy Hook happened, my daughter had just been born. That was also a turning point for me, and I wondered how I could get involved. And here you are with Gays Against Guns. I, uh, Sandy Hook was so horrifying, I, I can't even imagine how it must have hit parents. And what strikes me about Kim is instead of vengeance, she's choosing this path of radical empathy and compassion for the guy who killed her friend. I just find that incredibly inspiring and a really interesting twist to her story. So that is it for our show. Gays Against Guns meets here in New York every other Thursday at 7 p.m. in Manhattan at the LGBT Center on 13th Street. Please, everyone listening, join us. Everybody is welcome at any and all gag events. And despite the uh, kind of depressing nature of this show, we actually do have fun. To find out more about working with us, please go to gaysagainstguns.net or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And another great way to get involved is by be by becoming a WBAI buddy. 
That's someone who keeps our unique volunteer-run radio show going by signing up to give a small donation every month. Just go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 and become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. Special thanks to Trisha Cook for help with editing and production and Kevin Herzog for his interview with Kim Russell. An extra huge thanks to Kim and to Matt Gross for sharing their stories. The music on this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Rest You Sleeping Giant. And Matt Gross. Thanks for listening. We're back next Tuesday and every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. And don't forget, you can listen to Radio Gag on the BAI website at gazeagainstguns.net, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For music, we will let Matt take us out. Mama, take these guns off me. I can't use them anymore.